0: There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website.
1: Our speaker this evening earned his Bachelor of Arts degree from the University of Virginia with a double major in history and Spanish as well as his Doctor of Jurisprudence degree from the same institution. Mr. Rafael Madden has served in the U.S. Department of Justice. When I first read that, I read as the U.S. Department of Justice. I wish that were true. <laughs> since... <laughs> Since 1991 and became the general counsel of the de- department's office of justice programs in 2001. He is an adjunct instructor of jurisprudence and constitutional law at Christendom College and he serves on several boards in the area, nonprofit boards in the area, but most importantly, he serves on the board of the Institute of Catholic Culture. We're very, um, very thankful for your service that you've given us the many wi- wise years of service. We always rely upon Rafe when we have questions, well, concerning most everything on our board, we refer to Rafe. So please welcome again Rafe Madden.
2: Thank you. Thank you uh, very much. Um, Before we, uh, before I begin, uh, I ask you all to join me in prayer that I might worthily um, uh, uh, offer uh, some reflections uh, this evening, or if you want, I worthily, uh, we could pray that I don't fall flat on my face in front of such a large crowd. Either way you want to frame it is fine. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Holy Mary, help of Christians, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Father Hezekiah, a few moments ago, said, well, we're going to go from the modern world into the ancient world. And I was thinking, oh, yes, of course, we're heading into the election cycle and then straight into the catacombs for that. (laughs) Um, That that well may be the case. And if that's the case, uh, then uh, all I'd advise you to do is to remember today's gospel, uh, that we should be ready when the moment arrives. Um, You know, I find today's topic to be a little baffling. We talk about the, the decline and fall of a Catholicism in American political life. I mean, you, you could look around, the um, Vice President of the United States, a baptized Catholic, the Governor of Virginia and his predecessor and his predecessor, the Governor of Maryland and his predecessor, the Mayor of the District of Columbia and her predecessor, all baptized Catholics, the Vice Presidential Candidates of both major parties in this season, both of them baptized Catholics, the Speaker of the House and his predecessor is a Catholic, the president pro tem emeritus of the Senate of the United States is a Catholic. Five, four actually, of the eight uh, justices of the Supreme Court. I was saying five because I can't ever forget the incomparable Justice Scalia. All baptized Catholics. What is this talk of decline and fall of Catholicism in American political life? If you look at the history of Catholicism in the United States. It's uh, certainly interesting, I think a glorious history in many ways. Uh, here in Virginia, uh, we start with the uh, Jesuit martyrs of Virginia. Uh, you know, we're we're blessed here in Virginia to actually live on soil that was watered with the blood of martyrs for the faith. Um, their cause has been opened in Rome. Uh, I certainly hope that one day we come to uh, venerate them as, on the altars as saints of God um, here in Virginia. In fact, you might say it's the first seminary in the United States because not all of them were priests. Um, and uh, they were all there. And so you have both faculty and uh, those who were still become, on their way to becoming priests. Everybody in that particular seminary uh, made it to heaven. Uh, I don't know that there are many seminaries that can say that. Certainly not many in Virginia. Um, uh, Certainly not many in the United States, in any event. Um, But we have that here in Virginia. Um, Virginia is named after the Virgin Queen, perhaps after someone who wasn't a Virgin Queen, Elizabeth. Or, if you wish, uh, the Virgin Queen of Heaven. The Chesapeake Bay was first explored by Spaniards. Uh, who named it the Bay of St. Mary. And uh, although some would say that Maryland is named after Queen Henrietta Maria, in which case I ask, why isn't it Henrietta Land? Um, (laughs) It was certainly named uh, by devout Catholics, and I have to suppose that they may have wished to name it after the Mother of God. So here we are uh, on the great body of water, the beautiful body of water that we know as the Chesapeake Bay, originally named for our Blessed Mother. Here we are in a state uh, whose, t- whose very name echoes the Blessed Mother. And on the other side of the river is another state whose name echoes the Blessed Mother in a land that is, whose patroness is the Immaculate Conception of Mary. In the English colonies, um, and most particularly in Maryland, you might almost say exclusively in Maryland, uh, many Catholics settled, and for many decades, those Catholics enjoyed liberty. Uh, after a while, though, uh, persecution came. Nonetheless, there were quite a lot of them. And so it was difficult, quite, it was difficult to hammer them down. Uh, they, they, they didn't like it. Um, and uh, many Catholics in Maryland were very prominent. And uh, so we have Uh, At least one Catholic signs the Declaration of Independence, the Articles of Confederation, and the Constitution of the United States, Um, all in the same family, the Carroll family. Um, A wonderful example, Um, the United States wins its independence because two Catholic powers. The King of Spain is called His Catholic Majesty. It's a papal title. He's the only one in the world who gets to use that. I've tried, but my family won't let me. (laughs) Um, And they say that it's because the Pope has not actually given me the authority. So they're right there, by the way. Um, I checked. He didn't. Um, The King of France was known as his most Christian majesty. So his most Christian majesty and his Catholic majesty both sent their soldiers. Um, And it's because of the critical aid lent by those great Catholic powers, you know, with Baptized Catholic armies and navies with chaplains right there, cheek by jowl with American forces, that we win our independence from England. But over the long 1800s, there grows an increasing contempt for and hatred of Catholics in the United States. It's associated sometimes with a nativism, you know who are these riffraff irish who are coming here unlike we fine english blacksmiths um uh, uh or fine scots irish farmers um they might have been fine people but i don't know that they were especially um uh socially above the irish at the time and in any event uh the last time i checked uh all of them had been purchased by the blood of the lamb uh which makes them Extremely valuable, indeed. You might say infinitely valuable. Um, in fact, you might say it. I will say it. Um, but then, when horror of horrors, the Irish, get replaced by eye ties, you know, Italians coming over, and worse, um, you know, it becomes truly horrible. Um, uh, and so, and eventually you get to even, you know, Cuban beings like myself. It's just un- unutterable. Um, you have this, you know, you people back off, you're not true Americans. Um, apparently the initial A was lost somewhere in translation. Um, and of course, they're nasty Catholics, unlike we free Protestants. You can imagine that the immigrants didn't particularly like the treatment uh, afforded to them. Uh, and over the course of many, many years uh, in local politics, I mean, it's, it's very difficult to uh, sustain a these people are dirty and uncouth and foul and wicked and horrible when in fact they live next door to you and they're the ones who offer you uh, sugar and milk when you need it and uh, they're the ones who help tend your kids when you're all sick. Um, and they're so thoroughly decent people. It's hard to maintain that sense of other and what's more, they also, you know, eventually become voters, and they said, "Well, I don't particularly like what this person is saying." And they often found that that you know these these horrible, nasty Catholics voted in many ways the same way that we all do. Um, and so, uh, in many places, the immigrant communities eventually took over um, uh, in in a number of the inner cities, particularly on the East Coast. Uh, Irish influence becomes very, very. Um, powerful. So at the local level, you find that that sort of crude um, anti-Catholicism, I don't want to say it vanishes, it dissipates. It it goes into the background. And perhaps some of the more uh, proper or upstanding families might still feel it, but they say, but it's rude to say it in public. We talk about it at home, but we don't say it too much out loud. And Uh, We do our best to discourage our children from marrying any of them, but, you know, there it is. Um, In the South, I regret greatly to say, uh, because I'm a Southerner and happy about that, um, in the South, uh, anti-Catholicism, particularly in its open, naked, uh, crude uh, forms, uh, remained high. We frequently think of the Ku Klux Klan in, I think mistakenly, there was a series of clans over the different years. And it's a mistake to suppose that uh, what calls itself the Klan nowadays is what called itself the Klan in in 1869. Uh, They were different institutions with different different organizational structures and different goals. Uh, I'm not sure that the original Klan was particularly defensible. Those who know me know that I love understatement sometimes. Um, But certainly the later manifestations of the Klan become uh, particularly appalling. Um, And not merely appalling because they fingered Catholics uh, way high on their list of horrible things that they were trying to rid the country of. Um, but also because they were more wretched and disgusting institutions. Um, and they did more and more horrible things to individuals who, who could not, or could not easily, in any event, defend themselves. Um, the Klan in the 1920s um, was a disgusting institution in every way. And uh, you find that many progressive era politicians. Uh, make their way to the top of the charts uh, through the support of the Klan or membership in the Klan. Make no mistake about it, to be sure. Uh, you were not going to be high in the estimation of the Ku Klux Klan if you were black. Uh, but I'm not sure you would have been much higher if you were Catholic. In 1928, the Democratic Party and most Catholics in the country uh, most immigrants in the country had flocked to the Democratic Party for various, um, I might call them, incidental reasons. Yeah, the Democratic Party in 1928 named as its nominee Alfred Smith. He had been governor of New York, and the you, you have a handout in front of you, uh, the, the 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 crude truly crude uh, cartoons that were put out at the time of his, uh, yeah, no, no, I have, my, I have my copy here. Thank you. I just didn't have my fingers on it. Um, I, I, I gave you four of them, and I think they give you some indication of what's going on. In one of them, it says, Rome never changes, boast of Vatican. Well, in fact, it's true. You know, we, the preaching of the church, does it ever change in the sense of becoming other? No. Why? Because God doesn't change, and this is his teaching. And if we made it up, then we'd expect it to change probably before tomorrow comes. Um, Just look at any of the myriad meetings of various liberal Protestant congregations. At any given moment, they seem to be inventing something else that everybody's supposed to believe in today. Wait till tomorrow. It'll change. We anchor ourselves in, you know, Rome anchors itself in the teachings of the Lord. And uh, we... Glory in the fact that just as the Lord never changes, our teachings about Him never change. In the sense of becoming other, they may grow in the way that an acorn can become an oak tree, but an acorn can never become an, an acorn can never grow into an apple tree. I looked it up. <laughs> so you see here uh, in the Rome never changes boast of Vatican. That's horrible because you know. The, in the progressive era, everything's supposed to change. We're all changing for the better. And there you have the Pope kind of spider on his throne and in front a bishop with arrows that he's about to throw to hurl excommunication on hapless parents who are in the street. And the only thing they wanted to do was to send their kids to public school. And look at what Rome was doing. You can't do that. You have another one that says that the Pope sends another pole expedition. This one actually shows a little bit of cleverness, because they use the word pole in the sense of the North Pole, and also in the sense of the poles, the election polls. Um, uh, Nobile had launched an expedition to the North Pole. The Holy Father had blessed those who had gone on the de- expedition, and the expedition had failed. Um, and many lives had been lost uh, in that Uh, expedition to the North Pole. As I think I mentioned earlier, my parents are from Cuba, so I'm not particularly interested in going to, you know, North Washington. But um, uh, it's way cold there. It then says that now, as a result of the Smith candidacy, Rome was sending a new expedition to the poles in the United States. Um, And if you look at it, you see, you know, there's always this really fat, Priest dressed with a galera, and um, you know, invariably the Irish are shown with liquor near them, uh, and there's always money for campaign donations. Um, so there you have it. Political Rome is written on the side of the bishop's, oh, excuse me, of the priest's uh, cassock. There's another one that says Cabinet meeting if Al were president. And there you have the Holy Father, or at least someone who's supposed to look like the Holy Father. He looks like he's stoned. But um, you have the Holy Father, and then all these bishops all the way around, and then Al is attending them. There's only bishops at the table, and Al is serving them liquor. Um, that's his only job. He's a servant of the hierarchy. Uh, and then the final one that I thought I'd give you is the one that says, a heavy load for Al. And it shows him, and he's labeled Al Smith. Then comes wet crowd. And you have somebody who's obviously drunk and apparently supposed to look like he's Irish. Then you have someone who looks like he's either Italian or Mexican, alienism. Above that is a fat uh, priest dressed in a cassock and a galera. He's not labeled. Oh, by the way, the alien is also dropping a bomb out of his pocket. Um, And then above that, you have a Tiger Tammany Hall. Everybody gets labeled. We don't have to label the Catholics. That aspect we can see right there. Mm -hmm. There it is. Well, he lost. There's some debate as to whether he lost his election because of the um, anti-Catholic propaganda. I'm not I know there was a lot of it. On the other hand, that many of the states where um, the Ku Klux Klan was strongest, they ended up coming out in favor of the of the Democrats. I mean, they sort of swallowed hard and voted for their party. But uh, the ugliness of it affected the American psyche. In 1960, John F. Kennedy uh, ran for president Um, He runs for president at the head of the Democratic Party ticket and wins. Um, John Kerry runs as a Democrat, a baptized Catholic. He runs as a Democrat in 2004 for president. He's the nominee of the Democratic Party. Edmund Muskie, 1968, baptized Catholic, uh, Democrat vice presidential candidate under Hubert Humphrey, um, unsuccessful, as you may have gathered. Uh, Robert Sargent Shriver. Democratic candidate for vice president with George McGovern in 1972, unsuccessful. Jared Lee Ferraro, Democratic uh, nominee for vice president in 1984 under Walter Mondale. Sarah Palin, baptized Catholic, um, Democratic candidate, excuse me, Republican candidate under John McCain in 2008. Joseph Biden, Democratic candidate. For Vice President in 2008 and 2012 under Barack Obama, both times successfully. Paul Ryan runs in 2012 uh, under Willard or Mitt Romney uh, as a Republican. Timothy Kane, as I said, is now, um, I think I said, is now running uh, as Vice Presidential candidate under William, excuse me, Hillary Rodham Clinton. Uh, and Michael Pence is. Um, Running, he was a baptized Catholic, uh, is running as the running mate of Donald Trump for the Republican nomination. So again, you have in the Kennedy candidacy, there was some, and uh, there was a, more than a kerfuffle. There was anti-Catholic noise, not nearly so much as in 1928. But since then, uh, there's not been a whole lot of at least public or loud talk against these candidates or in favor of them because they're Catholics. Uh, I don't suppose that there's a lot of quiet talk or hushed talk, but it's not loud in public. Um, when Clarence Thomas was nominated to be a justice of the Supreme Court, the then governor of Virginia uh, uh, said, well, you know, the question is how loyal is he to the Pope? but that was quickly shushed because it was not the right thing to say. Um, I don't know whether it was the right thing to think but it certainly was not the right thing to say so he was ixnay on the opnay. So what you have is, you know, in many ways you find Catholics now running for all kinds of offices everywhere and no one seems to raise the subject of whether or not they happen to be Catholics and if they do raise it, they raise it in oblique, hidden kinds of ways. So again, what's all this talk of decline and fall? You might say, you know, what a there could hardly be a better time for the church. We're not being expressly criticized for being Catholics. You're not sufficiently American if you're a Catholic. But let's review. Michael Pence um, was a baptized Catholic. Uh, in college, he became a born again Christian. He says, "I would have thought he was born again when he was baptized, but apparently he missed that." Um, he has said, and I don't wish to trivialize. If you will, I, I'm not walking in his shoes. I certainly don't know his story. I know some aspects of his story, uh, but he has said, "Well, he became he became an evangelical Christian uh, because uh, that was the first time that anybody had told him that he should have a relationship with the Lord." And I'm sort of like, "You missed that." <laughs> um, apparently, he did. Uh, Timothy Kane is not only uh, a politician who favors uh, no restrictions of any kind on abortion. He's changed. He used to favor some. Uh, now he favors none. He also says, he's also now on record as saying that he, do, he favors the removal of any restrictions on federal funding for abortion. So it's not merely that there should be no no restrictions on the abortion license at all, but that the funding, you know, that you should pay for it. I'm sorry to point to you specifically. Um, uh, You can get back at me. Uh, We all should pay for it. Uh, Vice President Joseph Biden has also come out uh, strongly in favor of the abortion license and in favor of public funding for the abortion license. And a friend of mine rather uncharitably sent me uh, something on August 7th. Uh, Vice President Joe Biden officiates same-sex wedding. Uh, this from NBC. Vice President Joe Biden has officiated a gay wedding, a first for the early proponent of same-sex marriage. Biden presided over the union of John Mashey and Brian Mosteller, both longtime White House aides. The White House says the couple asked asked Biden to officiate. He had never officiated before, so he got a special temporary certification from the District of Columbia to make it legal. The afternoon ceremony took place Monday at the Naval Observatory, right across the street from the Apostolic Nunciature, The vice president's official residence with immediate family attending. He publicly backed gay marriage in 2012 in the run-up to President Barack Obama's Obama's re-election, the announcement put pressure on Obama to declare his own support shortly thereafter. And uh, then he sent me this shot where you see the vice president presiding and he wrote, Proud to marry Brian and Joe at my house. I thought it was the vice president's residence. Couldn't be happier. Two longtime White House staffers, two great guys. The um, part of the problem with that is that it's not grammatical. Um, It's it's a run on sentence, and Sister Michelle Marie uh, uh, would have, and he would have deserved it, thwocked him upside the head. But um, I suppose there are other things that we might say are objectionable. I, I won't belabor the point. Sarah Palin was baptized as a Catholic. But her family stopped going to church shortly thereafter, or stopped going to mass shortly thereafter, and then they started going to non-denominational churches, and eventually she became a Pentecostal. John Kerry, uh, long record as being a a person who favors no restriction or next to no restriction on the abortion license. Geraldine Ferraro, notoriously pro-abortion um, and in fact, uh, uh, stressed the fact that here she was, a Catholic woman, and that's why she supported these things. Uh, we hear Nancy Pelosi frequently tout that she's a Catholic grandmother. I'm, n- I'm not sure that grandmother necessarily, well, I revere my grandparents, but um, uh, I don't really know what she means by that. Um, uh, in any event... Nearly every Democrat in Congress, and many of the Republicans, and nearly all Democrats in, or perhaps all Democrats in Congress, but nearly every Democrat um, in the United States who happens to identify as a Catholic, uh, in some measure or other, supports the abortion license, simply to take one issue. I could take any of a number of ones, but that one seems to go back farther, and the record is clearer. And if you will, the moral law is clearer, or clearest there. So perhaps this talk of decline and fall, in fact, is apt. What happened? In 1928, Governor Smith, Al Smith, Alfred Smith, gave a speech on September 20th in Oklahoma City. Um, And in that one, he addressed head-on the anti-Catholicism that was being hurled in his general direction. Um, He started by saying, you know, you all are talking about how Catholics aren't truly Americans. Well, you know, no one mentioned it to any of the people who's died on the battlefield who happened to be Catholic. You know, they were perfectly happy to give their lives for this country. And none of you objected. Wait, we don't want their blood. You were happy to send them. Can't have it both ways, buddy. You just can't. He was a lot nicer than I just was. Um, he was a very affable person um, and a very faithful Catholic. He then said, You know, you say that it's incom- incompatible with being an office holder in the United States. Well, the people of New York have never seemed to find that to be the case. Over and over and over, they've elected me to office. And in none of those times have I ever once received any kind of order from any bishop to take any kind of action whatsoever. As I was formed as a Catholic, I certainly hope that I'm a faithful Catholic in everything that I do. But I don't see how there could possibly be a conflict with my duties as a Catholic and my duties as a citizen and my duties as an office holder. He said, you know, there's a secular sphere and there's a religious sphere and in the secular sphere, I am who I am. What I think to be good, what I think to be worth pursuing, what I think needs to be done is informed by everything that is around me. My experience as uh, a member of a family of descendants of Irish immigrants, my, member, uh, my membership in the Catholic Church, my, me- my citizenship in the state of New York. There's a hundred million things that have gone in to create this package called Al Smith. And you're thinking, but I thought his name was Rafe Matt. I'm referring to Al Smith. Um, uh, There's a 100 million things that go into making this package. And that's the one that I'm asking you to vote for. He says, I'm telling every Catholic in the world, do not vote for me because I'm a Catholic. That's improper. Vote for me because you think that what I want is what's best for the country. Because, as he well understood, if you say, vote for me because I'm a Catholic, then you've just said, if that's morally acceptable, then it's morally acceptable not to vote for him because he's a Catholic. If a person says, vote for him because, vote for her because she's a woman, well, then it's perfectly acceptable, to don't vote for her because she's a woman. If, if sex is a reasonable basis for determining whether or not to vote for someone, then why does it always have to be yes? It could be no. And if you don't think that, then I think that you don't think. Period. (laughs) He said, don't vote for me if the reason is because I'm a Catholic. I don't want your vote. And he was right. He lost that election. Again in September, September 12th, 1960, then-Senator John Kennedy spoke in Houston. His speech was different in many ways, and his speech has been much criticized. And I think that it's been much criticized with reason. I, I, I don't think that what I mean by that is not that I think that people using reason has criticized his speeches. I think that there's grounds, decent grounds for criticizing his speech, although I think that much of the chatter about his speech may be a little exaggerated. He embraces thoroughly the notion of separation of church and state, words that appear nowhere in the Constitution. Everybody says, ah, but they appear in a letter from Jefferson to the Danbury Baptist uh, Con- Connecticut Association. Um, yes, they do, in fact, appear there. No one quotes an almost contemporaneous letter of Jefferson where he says almost the opposite to the mother superior of the Ursuline nuns in, in New Orleans. He says almost the exact opposite of everything he said in the other letter. Um, it's a sad thing to be said about Thomas Jefferson that he can usually be quoted for any particular proposition and its opposite. Um, In any event, it was a metaphor. And it's not constitutional law. No one thought it was constitutional law until 1947 when the Supreme Court, under a person who had been a big member of the Ku Klux Klan in Alabama, uh, Justice Black, he said it was the Constitution. Um, and ever since then, it's found its way in the heart of American jurisprudence on the subject of religion. This is different from saying that one should render under Caesar what Caesar, and one should render unto God what is God's. By the way, that's not original with me. Someone else said that. Um, <laughs> and in any event, what Jefferson was talking about was no interference by the federal government in religion. His letter to the Baptist says nothing about whether the Baptists or, you know, the church could influence the state. It was the other way. In any event, Je- uh, Kennedy embraces separation. And he says, this is, all, you know, my religion is a private matter. And of course it is a private matter. It's just not merely a private matter. Much of what he says is problematic. Uh, Much of what he says requires a little bit of distillation because uh, it it is in in many ways a thoroughly uh, Protestant conception of religion. In many ways, it's a Baptist conception of religion. Um, It isn't a Catholic one. And even there, though, towards the end, he says, I don't think there's any kind of conflict that could arise. But if a conflict did arise, I would have to resign. Basically, he says, because the church would be first. In 1984, again in September, avoid September, um, (laughs) on September 13th at Notre Dame, Governor Andrew Cuomo of of the state of New York, he writes or gives a speech um, to the loud applause of a certain faction within the church in the United States. And what he proposes is, he says that, you know, in fact it is. Religion is something that is completely and totally private. And so what the church says about abortion is that he and his wife Matilda were not supposed to abort any of their children. And then he says, and we haven't. Well, I'm glad to hear it. Although I suppose that if he had, he shouldn't be telling me. He should be talking to his father, confessor, and his bishop. But he says, but, you know, as to my imposing that on other people, there's no consensus of any kind, and therefore it would be wrong for me to step into the public sphere. And I almost want to ask him, if he were here, he's not, he's dead. Um, and uh, I'd almost want to ask him, D- don't you think that a politician or a statesman might be able to affect public consensus? Aren't we at least called to try? Have you tried to persuade your fellow man, your, city- your, your the people that you represent, have you tried to say, well, golly, I know you disagree with me on this, but let's talk. Let me, let's see if I can't persuade you that at least some abortions might not be the best idea in the world. Let me try to persuade you that perhaps sometimes it ought to be limited. Nope, no consensus. I can't do anything other than try to encourage Medicaid funding for it. We move from there. This is one of those ones I said, you know, heaven sometimes doesn't do things so that my speech will turn out well. Um, Because the next speech is in January, uh, not September. But it's by his son, Governor Andrew Cuomo of New York in 2014. Now, Andrew Cuomo's speech is, eh, I'm trying to think of the right word, Amazing. I think might be the best one. He said, commenting on various Republicans who had uh, spoken on the subject of abortion, who are they? Are they these extreme conservatives who are right to life, pro-assault, weapon, anti-gay? Is that who they are? Because if that's who they are, and if they are the extreme conservatives, they have no place in the state of New York, because that's not who New Yorkers are. So." Extreme and pro-life become one concept. You're an extremist if you're pro-life and apparently you've no place in the state of New York because that's not who New Yorkers are. Now, I didn't know that anyone had given him the authority to declare who could and couldn't live in New York um, and who was or wasn't fit to be in the state. I always thought that that the people who took office were public servants, and here he is ordering his his master's about. Um, But, you know, apparently in his case, uh, what you have is, his religion is so private, it's private even as against himself. (laughs) He said in a speech, or excuse me, in a statement to the press, when there was wide criticism, he said, well, uh, the, the statement said, the governor's faith is very important to him, so important that it ca- has no effect on anything he does or says. <laughs> um, Richard, Father Richard John Neuhaus, or Neuhaus, um, a convert from Lutheranism, he said that uh, when orthodoxy is optional, it will eventually be prohibited. Put differently, when moral truths are made optional so as to be inclusive, they will eventually be prohibited. Now, commenting on Father Newhouse's uh, observation, uh, George Weigel, whom you may know for his excellent biography of, of uh, St. John Paul II, said, Father Newhouse's observation about optional orthodoxy becoming banned orthodoxy helps a bit in explaining the slippery slope from Mario Cuomo to Andrew Cuomo, but so does a lot of obviously ineffective catechesis and preaching. Uh, Andrew Cuomo has often talked about the portrait of Thomas More in his office. He doesn't seem to understand that he's playing Henry VIII. (laughs) Or at least Thomas Cromwell. Uh, Not more in the drama at Albany. Now, you, you, many of you must know, and if you don't, you, sh- you must go and, and know, about uh, Bishop Robert Barron. He responded to the uh, Governor Cuomo's language as, as describing it as being chilling, that a governor of a major state, one of the chief executives in our country, could call for the exclusion of pro-lifers and those opposed to gay marriage that the law could be used to harass, restrict, and attack Catholics. There's a short path, indeed, from the privatization of Catholic uh, moral convictions to the active attempt to eliminate those convictions from the public arena. Mario Cuomo posed the question in his speech, When should I argue, what, when should I argue to make my religious value your morality? My rule of conduct your limitation? As though they were simply personal beliefs. You know, why should I make you eat a certain kind of ice cream? Because I like it. And 30 years later, his son offers a kind of response when he says he will make his political value our morality. His rule of conduct becomes our law. I think where this leads me is that, in fact, maybe we shouldn't be talking about the decline and fall of Catholicism in American political life so much as we should be talking about the decline and fall of Catholicism among American Catholics. When you look at the statistics, and I don't encourage you to look at them unless you have a strong stomach or unless it's Lent and you particularly want to up the mortification, (laughs) um, uh, you find that unbelievably large numbers of Catholics have no grasp on the Eucharistic teachings of the church. You know, they, they either believe that, you know, it's some kind of a magic cookie or no magic cookie at all, just some kind of a piece of bread and not particularly very tasty. Uh, or they'll say that Jesus is in it, but it's also bread. So consubsta- they believe in consubstantiation, not transubstantiation, a condemned proposition, by the way. You know, what? the people who believe in the church's teaching, shockingly small. And that's about the Eucharist is the center of the faith. Catholics divorce at largely the same rate as Protestants. Catholics commit... Uh, There's slightly fewer abortions among Catholics than among Protestants, but slightly... We find that, you know, cohabitation outside of marriage uh, among Catholics is not particularly different from that with others. I, a good friend of mine, uh, whose wife graces us tonight uh, here, has, said, has referred to, well, the two central teachings of the Catholic Church are, uh, be nice, don't litter. Um, and I'm afraid that when that's what the Catholic Church is understood to teach, you have Uh, People like Governor Pence of Indiana who say, I'm sorry, I want real food. Now, he's gone somewhere where they don't have it. I mean, no insult, but they don't have the Blessed Sacrament. And, you know, as the Lord said, my flesh is real food. We have the Blessed Sacrament. No one had told him, apparently. Or it didn't sink in. I have every hope that his journey has placed him in a place with at least some relationship to the Lord. And that's a good thing. Uh, it's a tragedy that shouldn't have happened inside the church, which is the Lord's own home. Uh, but if he was desperate to find a relationship with the Lord, who am I to say him nay? If uh, the Heath family, Sarah Palin's maiden name is Heath, uh, for whatever reasons, didn't find the Lord in the church, which is his home, uh, all the worse for those who were there and should have shown them. And if all of these people can go about trumpeting their Catholicity uh, while at the same time uh, not uh, behaving as the church would have us behave. Not thinking with the church. Not living the mind of the church. Not breathing the same air as the church. That's a problem. And it's not merely a political problem. That's a symptom. It's a symptom. I know you want me to say it again because it's three, so the Trinity. It's a symptom. (laughs) It's not the problem. And as Father Hezekiah mentioned earlier, you know one of the reasons we see the uh, truly revolting spectacle of this year's election cycle is that um, we Catholics, you know, the, the Lord refers often to salt. Salt is necessary in a pre-refrigeration world to keep food from spoiling. Uh, It's also used to flavor food. What happens if the salt loses its flavor? He says, you throw it out and trample it underfoot. You know, he doesn't like, and it's hard to talk about the Lord as not liking, but he doesn't like tepidness, mere warmth. He likes us to be hot or cold. Um, And what does he do to those who are neither hot nor cold? It's not particularly nice. People say he spits them out. He vomits them forth. What is the duty of a Catholic in public life? I think that sometimes uh, I'm, I'm called to, to speak to you, uh, uh, for, you know, because you want red meat, and I'm usually happy to give it out, not during Lent, um, on Fridays, and uh, on other Fridays, but only if you've made appropriate other penances. Uh, I want to mention a few things. I teach at Christendom, as you heard, and one of the things that um, I teach at Christendom, one of the classes is constitutional law. And I tell my students, you know, I, I may ask you a question at exam time about Roe and Wade, or one or another constitutional law decision about abortion. And when I say, you know, tell me, you know, talk to me about that decision and describe to me whether it's well-reasoned, well-decided, poorly decided. If you say, it's poorly decided because think about the babies. I said, I promise you that I will be very, very edified as I take a red pen and write F across the top of your page. Because my class in constitutional law is not a class in moral philosophy or moral theology. My class is a class in constitutional law. So what's the duty of a Catholic with respect to the law or to to the Constitution, which is a species of law? The duty of a Catholic is to take the instrument, take the law, and consider it on its own terms. What does this law require, permit, or forbid? By itself! Now, once we've determined that, we have an answer. It requires me to take every third child, stick a scissors in its head, and vacuum the brains out. Hmm. A Catholic doesn't say, well, that's a bad result, so therefore I'll just interpret it to mean something else. Why? Who made you the legislator? Who said that you could write the law? Are you an emperor? Is your last name von Habsburg? If it is, then by all means, write the law and make it better than it is. Uh, But if it isn't, well, you don't have the authority to rewrite the law. Your job is to take the law and express what it says. Now, what do you do when you have a law that is bad? And Is there such a thing? Oh, yes. (laughs) That one I've looked up. (laughs) Oh, yes. When there's a bad law, as a Catholic, you know, now... The, being a Catholic required me to take the law and understand it as it is. Maybe the law says that abortion is permissible under these seven circumstances. Okay, then it's permissible under these seven circumstances according to the positive law. That's what it says. I'm not here to change it. I'm not the legislator. I'm supposed to read it. Now, as a Catholic, you know, it's kind of like the Wizard of Oz question. Are you a good witch or a bad witch? Um, is this law a good law? one that a Catholic in good conscience can follow, or not. And if a Catholic cannot follow it in good conscience, then it depends on what sort of position you're in. As a voter, you'd have to do your best to try to change it. Let's have a constitutional amendment. Let's vote people in who will get rid of this kind of thing. If the law is bad, it's our duty to try to change it. It's not our duty to try to interpret it away, because that's a lie, and we know who the father of lies is. So. You know, let's say that there were that the Constitution said abortion license on demand up until the day of birth. Well, then it would be a wicked thing for me to say that the Constitution forbids it. Because the Constitution doesn't forbid it. That is a lie. You now, as a Catholic, the Constitution should forbid it. And I should expend every effort to make it forbid it. But, oh my gosh, the babies. I feel for them as much as anyone. But that's not good constitutional law. And I'm being a bad Catholic if I say it is. But you know what? Very few people are called upon to be judges or expositors of the law, usually. Instead, we have people who run for office, and certainly we all have the opportunity to vote for those who are running for office. Now. What are their obligations? What are our obligations? Father Hezekiah mentioned the doctrinal note on some questions regarding the participation of Catholics in political life. The document was written by uh, the great Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger later, Pope Benedict XVI. It was approved by St. John Paul II on November 21st, 2002, who ordered its publication. You have a copy. I urge you to study it. I urge you to read it. I urge you to commit it, not to memory, that would be difficult, although if you can, that would be impressive. I urge you to commit its principles to heart. Um, I'm going to read a few sections of it. A kind of cultural relativism exists today, evident in the conceptualization and defense of an ethical pluralism. That is, there's no right and wrong, everything kind of goes, you think that's fine, I think it's fine, and if they conflict, well, you know, sign of too bad, and um, let's just move on. Whatever that means. I don't know what that means. I do know it gives me kind of an icky feeling. Furthermore, it's not unusual to hear the opinion expressed in the public sphere that such ethical pluralism is the very condition for democracy. That's what makes us a great people, the fact that we disagree on everything. I don't understand that. I don't understand that. So it's fine to disagree. I think it's fine to kill you. I think you would probably disagree that it's a fine thing to kill you. Maybe you think it's a fine thing to kill me. But you know, it's like, how can how can a house divided itself against itself stand? Again, that one's not original with me. As a result, citizens claim complete autonomy with regard to their moral choices. Moral choices they're for me to make, and you gotta back off, a la Andrew Cuomo. Uh, with regard to their moral choices, and lawmakers maintain that they are respecting this freedom of choice by enacting laws that ignore the principles of natural ethics and yield to ephemeral cultural and moral trends. He's describing our country. As if every possible outlook on life were of equal value. Hitler's is the same as ours. You know, they're just that's your view, that's my view. Okay, so a few people died in, you know, in Germany, but you know that that happens. Smiles all around. Did you hear what Beyonce is gonna come out with a new album? At the same time, the value of tolerance is disingenuously invoked When a large number of citizens, Catholic among them, are asked not to base their contribution to society and political life through the legitimate means available to everyone in the country on their particular understanding of the human person and the common good. You are, it's okay nowadays. The New York Times will not criticize you if you say, I'm voting for this because Elvis came to me last night in a dream and told me that I should vote this way. Okay, well, you know, that's the way you think it. But if you say, I'm voting this way because it is morally wrong, and I'm a Catholic, and I do not believe in that, gasp. (laughs) You can do so because you got drunk last night, and while you were staring at the puddle in front of you, you thought, wow, this would be nice. But if you do it based on Aquinas, that's impermissible. And there he's saying it. Tolerance requires Catholics to shut up. The history of the 20th century, and this is a reference both to communism and to Nazism. I don't like national socialists. I don't like international socialists. <laughs> the history of the 20th century demonstrate that those citizens were right, who recognized the falsehood of relativism, and with it the notion that there is no moral law rooted in the nature of the human person which must govern our understanding of man, the common good, and the state. There's no reality, there's no morals, it's just whatever you happen to think. Such relativism, of course, has nothing to do with the legitimate freedom of Catholic citizens. Um, It is not the Church's task to set forth specific political solutions, it is, however, the church's right and duty to provide a moral judgment on temporal matters when this is required by faith or the moral law. If Christians must recognize the legitimacy of different points of view about the organization of worldly affairs, they're also called to reject a conception of pluralism that reflects moral relativism. Democracy must be based on the true and solid foundation of non negotiable ethical principles, which are the underpinning of life in society. On the level of concrete political action, there can generally be a plurality of political parties in which Catholics may exercise, through legislative assemblies, their right and duty to contribute to the public life of the country. But, he goes on to say, legislative proposals are put forward which heedless of the consequence for the existence and future of human beings with regard to the formation of culture and social behavior attack the inviolability of human life. Catholics in this difficult situation have the right and duty to recall society to a deeper understanding of human life and the responsibility of everyone in this regard. As John Paul II has taught in his encyclical letter Evangelium Vitae regarding the situation in which it is not possible to overturn or completely repeal a law allowing abortion, which is already in uh, in force, or coming up for a vote. Quote, an elected official whose absolute personal opposition to procured abortion uh, was well-known could licitly support proposals aimed at limiting the harm done by such a law and lessening its negative consequences at the level of general opinion and public morality. That is, you could vote for a lesser evil but only if your goal is to get rid of it entirely. Because you can't win on the other ground. He doesn't call for surrender. In fact, he says we have a duty not to. When political activity comes up against moral principles that do not admit of exception, compromise, or derogation, the Catholic commitment becomes more evident and laden with responsibility. In the face of fundamental and inalienable ethical demands, Christians must recognize that what is at stake is the essence of the moral law, which concerns the integral good of the human person. This is the case with laws concerning abortion and euthanasia. Such laws must defend the basic right to life from conception to natural death in the same way it is necessary to recall the duty to respect and to protect the rights of the human embryo. Analogously, the family needs to be safeguarded and promoted based on monogamous marriage between a man and woman and protected in its unity and stability in the face of modern laws on divorce. In no way can other forms of cohabitation be placed on the same level of marriage nor can they receive legal recognition as such. And yet we have a person who trumpets his Catholicity who's out there marrying supposedly people, all the while saying perfectly good Catholic, perfectly good standing, no problem. It's our duty when we hold of office to be Catholics. It's our duty when we vote for those in office to be Catholics. And if you're not a Catholic, I and mean, what do they say, what's the difference between a Protestant and a Catholic? You know, a Catholic has integrity. Excuse me, a Protestant has integrity. Um, excuse me, not a Protestant and a Catholic. A Protestant and a dissenting Catholic. The Protestant has integrity. He says, I'm not a Catholic. Uh, the dissenting Catholic doesn't, you know, doesn't have the honesty to say that. Now, I'm not, you're kicking all these people out of the church? No, they are. You know, what's a Catholic? A person who holds and believes everything that the church holds and believes to be true. Everything. I could go on and say, and has made his Easter duty. But um, at very least, you have to be that. Do you hold and believe everything that the church holds to be definitive tenenda, Definitely to be true. Um, If you don't, you're not a Catholic. You may be very nice. You may be struggling. You may get to heaven. I easily could not. Nothing to do with it. It has everything to do with whether or not you're a Catholic. We need to remember one last thing. And that is, what doth it profit a man to gain the whole world if he loses his soul? May God be praised.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Ray, for another wonderful presentation at the Institute. That uh, line, I'll have to go back and, and get the exact words, but we shouldn't be t- talking about the rise and fall of Catholicism in U.S. political life. We should be talking about the rise and fall of Catholics as Catholics. Um, and, uh, and he's absolutely right. Uh, a quotation from Pope Francis that you've heard me uh, share before. Courage is needed to undertake a profound review of the structures in place for the formation and preparation of the clergy and the laity of the church. It is not enough that formation be considered a vague priority, either in documents or at meetings. What is needed is the practical wisdom to set up lasting educational structures on the local, regional, and national levels. The present situation calls for quality formation at every level. My brothers and sisters... I believe what we are doing together and we are doing it together at the Institute of Catholic Culture is exactly what the church is calling for. What Pope Francis is calling for. What Pope Benedict called for. uh, What what Pope St. John Paul II called for in the new evangelization. You are not untimely born. You are not untimely born. You are chosen by God for this moment. You are and I were chosen by God for this moment and for the battle of our age. We better be ready for that battle when it comes. Okay, questions? Professor, you talked a little bit about some of the Catholic villains, if you will, the Cuomos, the Kennedys, the Pelosi's who uh, sort of sold, uh, sold out. Who are the Catholic politicians in America, both past and present, who stood hard on their principles and uh, who can be examples for us?
2: Well, that's, uh, that, that's a somewhat difficult question because there, if you will, there are many faithful uh, Catholic politicians. There are many of them, you know, even in such despised institutions as the United States Congress. Um, you, you actually can find... Uh, staff members who are faithful Catholics and good upright uh, citizens and honest people who are trying to live their faiths uh, or live the faith. Um, you can find wonderful examples of uh, Christian life and of real devotion to the Lord among Protestants. You can also find the occasional um, uh, honest and principled uh, non- uh, Christian, perhaps non non believers. They're somewhat rare, or at least in my experience. That my experience is limited. Uh, but I, I would hate to mention particular names because I don't want. You know, this isn't about my endorsing any particular person. But they're certainly there. I mean, when I hear, oh, they're all corrupt. It's not true. They're not all corrupt. And and I think you you defame uh, when you say so. I didn't. You didn't actually say so, but. Um, and also, it's important for me to say, I haven't said, nor would I wish to say, you know, these people, you know, they're doomed to hell. Uh, if if that is their ultimate fate, they've put themselves there. I mean, you know, if you will, that, that's the one where you, you buy and write your own ticket. Um, I just know that there is something extremely disquieting about a person, and I'm not their bishop either, um, but there's something extremely disquieting about a person who professes to be a Catholic, when you see in the pages of the Washington Post a devout Catholic, what that means is a non-Catholic. Um, so and so, a devout Catholic who nonetheless is, you know, like, well, probably not Catholics at all, at least not by any recognizable definition. Although perhaps they self-identify as Catholics, and nowadays we know what happens: people are self-identifying as all kinds of things. Um, you may, you may be confident that I self-identify as a Catholic.
0: Is there a simple definition of non-negotiable issues when Catholics vote?
2: Well, in the uh, instruction, uh, there's a a list of them. Um, We might say, if you will, there are certain kinds of moral laws that are moral laws that are obligations on Catholics. Catholics have to marry in the church in the ordinary course. Um, you know, you're going to give me the example of somebody who's in Antarctica or something or other. And okay, but Catholics in the ordinary course have to marry in the church. Protestants don't, or it would be very awkward. Uh, <laughs> they have to marry in a Catholic church, or it's not valid. I mean, it doesn't make sense. Um, there are uh, moral laws that are binding only on Catholics. Uh, and those moral laws, for instance, you know, the, the laws on uh, attendance at Mass on Holy Days of Obligation. That's it's very serious events if we don't do it without good cause. But there are other things that are grounded in the natural law. Anyone has the capacity, at least any person who is not impaired, has the capacity to discover the truth of the moral law through the use of reason. I don't say it's always easy, but you at least have that capacity. And when the church speaks or teaches on something that involves the moral, the natural law, the church is simply making it easier for you. It's like a a professor says, you know, what are all those X's and Y's and equal signs and greater than's or whatever. I once took calculus. (laughs) Oh, that was, that was a really funny one. uh, the only thing that I remember is the limit as something approaches something else is something else entirely, but um, I, I'm not sure what that does and if you ever hear that I have built a bridge don't cross it um, but uh, the my, my point is that the church is there to say okay. You may not have the time the capacity the sophistication the knowledge to get there so I'll walk you there. That's a gift. But it isn't because the church is pronounced, you know, that means that it, you know, it, it, it's, it's Catholic dogma and it's binding in the same way that no meat on Fridays is binding. Um, those things that are rooted in the natural law, in some sense, are binding on everyone. Um, and in particular, when they involve literally life and death issues or issues that go directly to the dignity of the human person, like family issues, those are non-negotiable. But even there, as I said, there's a hierarchy, because if you don't have life, you got nothing. So, you know, to deny someone life, I always hear, well, you know, so-and-so really, really loves children. I said, those children that she allows to live. That's not particularly impressive. I once sat there appalled as a senator of the United States speaking in a Senate Judiciary Committee talked about, well, if my daughter came to me wanting an abortion, then I would do everything possible to help her. And I said, so we have a sitting senator of the United States. Um, it would be wrong if I said that she was from California. Um, <laughs> she just said in public that she would happily kill her own grandchildren. I'm thinking, you know, the Greeks talked about these people. Medea killing her own children. She doesn't come out well in the story. And here we are. Let's vote her in. She's compassionate. Well, I don't, I don't think that the, the babies think that she was compassionate. I, my guess. I don't know. I haven't interviewed them. Will you please comment on the cause of this decline that you talk about? Original sin <laughs> <laughs> Concupiscence uh, That that defect that we inherit that we carry around with us that desire to take the easy route the one to uh, uh, Love being ad love being adulated and praised the one that likes to grow in the estimation of the Washington Post uh, that 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 sense that gosh, wouldn't it be nice if everybody liked me? Um, uh, except for God, I don't really care. Uh, that's the reason. We, I will say, and I don't mean to criticize the, uh, any earlier generations, I have plenty of things to criticize in myself. Uh, but I, uh, but there certainly was, you see, among European peasants with not particularly much education over the course of centuries transmit the faith faithfully. Uh, But something happened between the 1950s and the 1970s or in 80s when that transmission didn't happen. Now, the communication of the faith seems to have died in in all but a few places, and often they are imperfectly. I don't get it. I don't understand it. But it's true.
1: Thank you professor. Thank you
2: very much.
0: Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. Or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.